0: That that takes place. So, uh, Mark chapter nine, verse fourteen is where we are today. And let's pray for the Holy Spirit to give us illumination and blessing on the word, and then we'll look at this. Oh God, we come before you now in the name of Christ, and we pray for your help. We pray for your blessing upon the word. We pray your blessing, oh God, upon your people today. We pray your blessing upon those who are not your people that you would give them ears to hear. And Lord, above all else, please exalt Christ in our midst. It's in His name we pray. Amen. By 14 through 29, now this is a, this is a longer passage than usual. Usually we, we take on four or five verses, six or seven at the most. Here we have about 15, so let's go ahead and read through this. Uh, but it, it does happen at a very fast clip as far as the scene here, so we, we, uh, there's really no way to do justice to the passage without taking it all in one setting. So that's what we're going to do. So this is verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with the spirit, which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told you disciples to cast it out, and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, O unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It was often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him, and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now, when you're looking at this passage, notice, okay, so two things that are very critical. Number one is the backdrop that we just saw, let's say, two weeks ago, since I wasn't here last week. Thank you, Eric, by the way. Of course, we, Eric always does a good job. Um, But two weeks ago, if you can remember what happened, they're coming off the mountain. So they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. They see Christ talking to Moses and Elijah. Now they're coming back down the mountain. And you remember the conversation they had last time we looked at this? They're talking, they're having a conversation about what it means that Christ is going to die, be raised from the dead. That's the conversation. And it's not really a conversation. The disciples are still trying to figure out what that means, what's going on there. Christ is still trying to emphasize certain aspects of it. That conversation is continued here in this passage. You might not see it, but you'll definitely see it when we get there. But as we look at this, okay, we're going to take this in five different points. We're going to have five points on this because it's so big, just to kind of break it up a little bit. But number number one is there's the setup of the problem. That's 14 through 16. There's a problem going on, namely regarding this, this boy who's demon-possessed. Number two... Um, that's the setup of the problem. Number two is the problem itself, the explanation, exactly what's going on. You know, as far as your translation, some of them might say epilepsy, so we're going to have to deal with some of that. Okay, number three, the confrontation with the problem. That's when Christ comes in. The disciples can't do it. Christ comes in. He does it. Number four is the resurrection, and we'll see that. As I just mentioned, the resurrection, 25 through 27, and then at the very end, we'll see what the key to all of this is. The key to casting out this demon. That's 28-29. So, first of all, the setup here, okay? The setup of the problem. As they come, look at verse 14. It says, When they came back to the disciples, came back from where? Well, came back from the mountain. Remember, we talked about how the mount of transfiguration was for us, it's it's a type of, just for us, or like us, when we gather together on the Lord's Day, every first day of the week, it's it's a type of mountain for us. We go up, we ascend the mountain, God meets with his people. But we got to come back down the mountain. Every time you come back down the mountain, there's a sense of... Um, it's, it's like this. When Moses is on the mountain, and he receives the commandments from God, and you know that he's in a state of, of exaltation, emotionally, spiritually, this man is seeing things that nobody's ever seen before. He's encountering God. God's encountering him in ways that, that very few have ever experienced. The same thing took place on the Mount of Transfiguration with these guys. What happens with Moses? Moses goes back down the mountain, and what happens? What does he confront when he goes back down the mountain? Idolatry. People are running around and dancing like crazy around a golden calf. And the same thing with Elijah. Elijah has this similar experience on, on Mount Horeb. He comes back down, and what does he have? He has Jezebel and Ahab, Ahab and Jezebel, pursuing him, chasing him, trying to kill him, everything else. Same thing for us, right? We gather together on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, then we got to come back and we got to get back to the regular life, go back to work, go back to the grind, everything else. So they're coming back to the grind, back to reality, back to the fight. You'd like to stay on the mountain, you can't stay on the mountain. you got to get back to work. That's what's happening. When they come here, you see there's a large crowd, and they're with, within the large crowd you have scribes and you have a demon-possessed boy. That's, that's the typical makeup of everyone who's been around Christ from the very beginning. Wherever he goes, he has a crowd... He has some scribes, and he has someone who's demon-possessed. A lot of times, a lot of people who are demon-possessed, right? So that part is not unusual. What is unusual, though, in a sense, is so these scribes are arguing with the disciples. And you assume that they're arguing with the disciples. I mean, by now the scribes have already accused Jesus of blaspheming. They've already accused Jesus of actually being possessed by Beelzebub, by, by a devil himself. They've already tried to put him to death and, and, and done certain things and plotted certain schemes for him to die. And so now they're arguing with the disciples, and I'm sure they're ridiculing the disciples because we know the disciples have failed to heal this boy of a demon. And so it's validation for the scribes. They can say, I, hi, I told you so. We knew that this guy was a false teacher. You're not able to do this. And so that's why, in a sense, okay, verse 15, now this is probably the the... The strangest verse in the entire passage here, verse 15. Now, you wouldn't know it necessarily, but if you think about it, if you spend some time on verse 15 and just think about it, you will realize very quickly this is unusual. Okay? Immediately when the entire crowd saw Him, Christ, coming down off the mountain, coming back from the mountain, transfiguration, they saw Him, they were amazed. Now, on the surface you read that and you're like, well, of course they're amazed. It's Christ. But here's the thing. Where have you seen this explained in this way up until this time? You have never seen this. Every time we've seen Christ, whenever people are amazed, they're amazed after He does the exorcism, after He heals somebody. It's never beforehand. We've never seen that before. And here's the thing about this word. You read in verse 15, okay, the entire crowd, they were amazed, and that—that. That, Okay, but it doesn't, it doesn't do justice to the force of this word in the original. The word in the original is, is literally to tremble and astonish to the point of alarm. They're, I mean, this is no ordinary amazement. This isn't like you go outside and see the sunset and you just, man, that's, a, that's amazing. All right, kids, get in the car. That kind of amazement. Where he's just like, yeah, you know, it's yeah, it's it's cool, but I mean, come on, guys, we got it, life goes on. This is something else. This is something that verges on alarm. This is a this is strong emotion. This is the kind of this is kind of the kind of astonishment that flattens you, that makes your jaw drop. And you have to ask yourself, why are they why? Why <laughs> why? He hasn't done anything. Everything up to this time, and you you might be able to say, Well, it's because of what he has done. Yeah, but it still doesn't fit the theme that we've seen in Mark. The alarm or the amazement comes afterwards. What you have here is very it's very obvious that this is just like when Moses comes off the mountain. What's, what's, what's the reaction of the Israelites when Moses comes off the mountain? Something like they're it's a verge, they're verging, it's on a, they're they're alarmed. They're stunned. They can't even look at Moses. It's too much, it's too much glory for them to look at. Moses, put something over your face. We can't stand, we can't stand this. That's the word that's being used here. So you can see Christ as he's coming off the mountain, like Moses. He's trailing these clouds of glory wherever he goes now. When he comes off the mountain, they're seeing this and they're overwhelmed. And that's Mark tying what Christ does on the mountain with Moses. He's showing us that Christ is the new Moses. Okay? But here's the thing they run to greet him, which is the proper thing to do, right? They they realize, okay, the disciples have failed. So they're going to run to Christ. In verse 15, they run up to greet him, And then it says in verse 16, he asked them, what are you discussing with them? Or what are you disputing with them? This is a word for arguing. What are you arguing about? Something like that. And this leads us to the problem. In verse 17, there's the problem here. Number two, the problem. 17 and 18. And then you have this description of the man. He comes out. Teacher, I brought you my son. This father. I brought you my son, possessed with the spirit which makes him... Now look at the description. Mute. It seizes him, slams him to the ground. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth. He stiffens out like a board. And then later on down the road, we're going to see that, that he seizes up. He has these seizures, and it tries to destroy him in fire and in water and all these things. So what you're looking at here, now this is the thing, okay? You see what he says here. He says that he is possessed with a spirit. And when you see Christ describe this over here in verse 29, look at what he says in verse 29. This kind cannot come out. So here's the thing. It makes him mute. He gets locked jaw. It throws him to the ground. It tries to destroy him. An image bearer of God is trying to destroy this image bearer of God. He foams at the mouth. He grinds his teeth, stiffens him out. He has seizures. And then you read some translations and lamentably it says that he it was something like epilepsy. And parallel passages, it calls this epilepsy. In your, so so if, if you're reading like the KJV, if you're reading the original, it says something like he was moonstruck or a lunatic. You might have that, a lunatic or moonstruck, which is definitely better than epilepsy. Why is it better? Here's the thing. When you're looking at this, okay, there's two dangers here. Number one, this is not epilepsy. This is demon possession. It's important to realize. okay, This is demon possession. And we see that clearly by the text, right? There's no, there's no question about it. When, when you're calling these things epilepsy, you know what we're doing is we're, we're looking for naturalistic explanations to explain away the actual scenario. And our culture does this all the time, right? We don't want to look at something and say, hey, maybe the guy's possessed by a demon. No, it's not that. It's just he's bipolar. Or, and I'm not saying bipolar it means you're possessed. And this leads us to the second danger. The reason this is not epilepsy is because if it, you know what happens if this is epilepsy? Then every case of modern epilepsy becomes demon possession. And that's not true. Not every case of epilepsy is demon possession. Right? There, there are. So, so, and this is the thing. When you're looking at this, you realize that, okay, are there people who are possessed by demons today? Yes. We know that to be a fact. Do we try to explain it away or try to justify it? Yes, of course we do. Certainly in our culture. Are there very many people who are demon possessed? I don't think so. I really don't. I spent a lot of the last two weeks, I was supposed to preach this last week, right? So I, I had a double week to really look at demon possession and spiritual warfare and all these things. I'm convinced that there's not a lot of demon possession, especially in the West. We have, the reason for that is because the demon, the, the, I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but the devil doesn't really need to use possession. All he can, like in our culture today, we have enough to distract us that the devil really doesn't need to possess us. I mean, if all you're doing is staring at your phone all day and you're on TikTok 24, I mean, the devil's already done his job. What does he need to possess you for? You, already, you yourself already possessed, you know, by you're enslaved to this thing. He doesn't need that. So in other cultures today, I think it's certainly more prevalent. But here's the point, okay? We can't explain this away. This is what it is. This little boy is possessed by a demon. And not only is he possessed by a demon, but notice this, okay? These these descriptions of what's going on to this boy, makes him mute, throws him to the ground, foams at at his mouth, he grinds his teeth, seizures, all this stuff. There is one affliction from each of the previous exorcisms or healings combined in this child. So Every exorcism or healing that we've seen up to this time, this child is afflicted with that. So this is no joke. And that's why, in a sense, at the end, when, in verse 29, when Christ is referring to this kind, I do think there's something to this, that there is this kind. There are, there, we know there are powers and principalities. There are, different, there are different levels here when it comes to the spiritual realm. And this, apparently, is a, a, a particularly bad case of it. And so this man, this boy, is possessed by a demon. Now, he brings, verse 18, it says, Okay, I, I told your disciples to cast it out. And they couldn't do it which is important. In fact, the whole theme of this is the fact that the disciples couldn't do this because this is going to play into the man's unbelief. I do believe that. And this is also going to play at the very end when the disciples are like, man, what happened, Lord? I mean, we've already been sent out. We've casted out demons before. We've healed people before. We've raised people from the dead before. But here we we encountered something. We couldn't do something. We couldn't do this. There's failure there. And they're trying to figure out why eventually. But here's the thing. The disciples couldn't do it. And so what's Christ's reaction to this? Verse 19. He says, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? What is your deal? I mean, and here's the thing about the the generation part. Has there ever, and this is a rhetorical question, But has there ever been a more... Don't tell me this culture. And I know what we say, right? I I get it. If Christ came back today, we would crucify Him. Yes, I get that. But here's the thing. There actually was a, a generation of people that when Yahweh took on flesh, the Yahweh of the universe, the Creator God of all things, when He took on flesh and walked among a certain generation, that generation turned around and killed Him, crucified Him. And, of course, it's the generation Christ is talking about. And that's why he says it'll be worse for the people of Capernaum than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah on the Day of Judgment. Because the generation in Capernaum at the time of Christ was worse than the generation of Sodom and Gomorrah at the time when God dropped fire and brimstone on them. And I get it. Our culture is probably worse. I get that. But the thing is, is, The reason this is so heinous is because these are Jewish people and Christ the Messiah. This is their Messiah, right? This is the Messiah who comes from them. That's why it's particularly wicked. This is their own Messiah. And that's why you see this expression. It's a weariness just tied to this disappointment and eventually destruction. But this isn't the first time you have in places in the Scriptures like Deuteronomy 32.5. Where it says, they have acted corruptly toward Him. They are not all His children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. And so, who is this wicked generation? Well, it's the scribes, it's the unbelievers. And you can tie it in also to the disciples here. I really believe that. I think the disciples are in on this as well. It's not to say Christ is just ready to kick them to the curb, but it's saying that when we've seen... I mean, what did we see about you know, three, two chapters back. They're in the boat, and Christ is saying, why do you discuss the fact that you have no no breath? Do you not see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? And he's, remember, he's lambasting them for their unbelief. And so these guys, even as they're coming off the mountain, and they're they're still questioning about the resurrection and the fact that Christ says he's got to die, and they're they're like, no, you can't die. What are you talking about? You're out of your mind. So there's a lot of factors here in play. He's saying, "Oh, unbelieving generation!" He's weary. He's tired. He's these guys have been trying them, and he lets it out. Oh, unbelieving generation! How long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? I want to hear that on the chosen. Do they mention that part? Of course not. Of course not. It's too authentic. It's too raw. But he says this. Now look at the confrontation. Christ doesn't just say, "Guys, I'm out of here, man. I'm going. I'm going to go hang out in the wilderness." Nobody follow me out there. I'm just going to write it out until the Lord calls me, and I'm going to ascend, be at the right hand of the Father. He doesn't do that, right? So there's a good lesson for us as well, because you might be tried, you might feel wearied, you might you might you might feel vexed. But look what Christ does. He hangs in there. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't leave them. He doesn't take off. He hangs in there, and deals with the problem. He confronts the problem. Look what it says here, verse 20. There's a description. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion. And you see the intensity? It increases. The intensity increases as it's exposed to Christ. We've seen this already. When they bring the man who's possessed by a demon into the synagogue where Christ is, remember he starts thrashing and crying out and everything else, once he comes into the arena where Christ is, you see that here. So there's an uptick in this response from this demon. This demons we've already seen, the demons scream out. And then verse 21, you have this this question of compassion here. Christ says, how long has this been happening to him? And the dad says, from childhood. And then he describes how this, this thing is trying to destroy him, throwing him into fire, throwing him into water for the express purpose of destroying him. And then here, the Father, right? He makes this this oopsie here. Verse 22. But if you can do anything, oops, right? What do you mean, if you can do anything? What do you mean, if Christ can do anything? Is Christ not the one who made the entire universe? Is He not the one that is sustaining the universe, even as He's walking on this earth? He's still upholding all things by the word of His what do you mean, if, right? So the guy, but here's the thing. We've already seen the, the, the disciples. And I'm not making excuses for this, guys. We'll see in a minute. But the disciples really, he in faith apparently brought this boy to the disciples. The disciples can't do it. So now he's maybe thinking, maybe this is just a case that's too over, too over the top. Nobody can help me here. Maybe, you know, if you can do anything, that would be great. But here's the problem with this. And Christ, of course, points out right away, you know, notice in verse 23, Christ says, if you can. What do you mean? if you can if you can okay we've already seen people they'll come up to Christ and they'll say things like this if you are willing that's different god please deliver me heal me of this leprosy if you are willing not if you can if if you're powerful enough if you're willing that's completely different so when Christ picks up on this you notice what he says after this in verse 23 he says if you can all things are possible to him who believes. So, what he does is he turns it around and he says, It's not, see, you've made it a matter of divine ability. Where in reality, it's not about divine ability, it's about your belief. And the reason this is important is because a lot of times, especially as Calvinists, man. We like to think, hey, now, now, at least functionally or practically, I know that we all say, yeah, we need to be praying and we, need to, you know, we believe it. But really, I mean, right? Do we sometimes, at least functionally, we kick our feet up and we say, oh, we're not. Hey, God is sovereign. If He wants to heal me of this thing, He can. He doesn't have to. But what's the point of asking? He's He's going to do what He wants. He's sovereign. You know, I got you know I got I got my neighborhood and they're all heathens and they wave their rainbow flags and they you know wear their weird feminist t-shirts and everything. But I mean if God wants to if God wants to save them, he's going to. I'm not gonna pray for them. Because God is sovereign. They're either elect or they're not elect. So what's the point? What's the point? Here's here's the point. What Christ is telling us is that God uses means. To bring about certain ends. That God actually uses us, uses our prayers. There's a reason why Christ says, ask and knock and seek, and you have not because you ask not. Does He not say that? Why don't I have this? You haven't asked for it. Oh, (laughs) I didn't know it's... I don't know, and, and then when you ask, like it says in James, right? It says it, it says in James, you know, when you do ask, you ask for selfish motives, you ask for selfish reasons. So that's not that's not good either. So what Christ is doing here is he's flipping it. He's saying, look, it's not my it's not my problem, or it's not the I'm not the reason here. You're the reason. You don't believe. You don't. You didn't ask. You didn't. You, what do you mean? If you can. So that's what's going on here, and this is a glorious thing for us, I think. If you just pause and you ask yourself, okay, this is quite amazing. If what God is saying here in the parallel passages, you see, you're talking about like moving mountains and things like that. And that's coming from, from a lot of the Old Testament language as far as the, the kingdom of God coming to earth and, and then the advancement of the gospel and, and things like that. But, and th- that's part of it too, though. How come Clovis is so run amok with wickedness? I don't know. But well, we're just going to do our thing. I mean, if they want to, you know, if they want to go and, and do their thing and I mean the dr- drug abuse and the murders and the the push for abortion—all these things, right? We're looking at it. Well, not not us in general, right? But the mindset is: is hey, just just let it all go, and we're going to stay devoted to our little bubble and our little thing. Whereas Christ is saying, "No, pray for this, right? Pray that Christ is 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 King in Clovis." You know, Pray that, that these neighborhoods are changed. Pray that this person is delivered from their illness or cancer or whatever they have. Pray for those things. For everything. And you're like, yeah, but God is sovereign. Yeah, and this sovereign God has told us that he uses means like us praying to bring about certain ends. So pray for these things. And that's what you have here. He's saying it's not about... It's, it's, look, this is, the other thing here is this, though, okay? We're not saying that faith, because you know people take this and they run amok with with this, right? And they, they take advantage of this and they say, listen, when you are sick, if you're still sick, after you pray, it's because you're not praying with faith. We've heard that. If you don't have a job and you're praying for a job, the reason you still don't have a job is because you lack faith. So what do you do with that? Well, the very important principle of reading, interpreting Scripture with Scripture, and you have in Scripture something like this. You have Paul, who's praying, God, I, got, I have this thorn in my flesh, please take it away. He's praying. Three times he says, I prayed, and God eventually comes, and he says, you know what, I'm not going to answer that prayer, Paul. I'm not going to answer it, because my grace is sufficient for you. Because this is what you need to make you stronger. Because when you're weak, then then, then you're stronger. Because you're more, you trust in Christ more. You trust in God more. You lean on Him more. Same thing. What, what about Christ? When He's in Gethsemane, does He not say, Father, let this cup pass from me? Is He not praying? Does He not tell His disciples, why can't you stay up and pray? That's clearly what He's doing. He's praying. Why can't you guys stay up and pray with me? And He's praying, God, take this cup away. Let this cup pass from me. Oh, make me drink this cup. But what happens? God says, no. You're going to drink the cup. So it doesn't mean that just because you, 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 you have faith that God is some kind of gumball dispenser that just pops out whatever you ask him. That's not what's going on here. But it is to say that God does use means. And there's a balance here, like everything else in the Christian life. Balance is key. And that's what you have here. But then look at this man. I believe this man does have faith. In verse 24 it shows. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, You know what? This is too much. I'm out of here. This is ridiculous. He doesn't say that, right? He doesn't say that. Immediately. Notice the word. Immediately. The boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. (laughs) Right? In other words, he says, I believe that what you're saying is true. If I have enough faith, if I have faith here, if I believe, then I believe that you will heal him if I believe. I do believe, but I don't believe, so help my own belief. So he believes that what Christ says is true, but then he realizes, I don't have that belief, so help me, so he knows where the source is. He knows that Christ can do this if only he has faith. He doesn't have faith, he doesn't have belief, so he needs help. This is beautiful. This is exactly, this is the Christian life right here. I'm so convinced of this. He He knows. Um, and look at this. I have a, a quote here. But, but, you know, when you look at the disciples, so here's an example, like the disciples. The disciples themselves are living examples of this. The disciples have done a lot of good things. I know we harp on the bad things. I know we harp on the unbelief. We, they get it wrong a lot. But they're also hanging in there. By now, we've already gone through John chapter 6, where all, a lot of the disciples are leaving because it's too hard for them. And Christ turns around to the disciples, like Peter and like... Andrew, and like all the guys here. And Peter turns around and says, what, what about you guys? Y'all remember that? Are you guys going to leave too? And they say, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. So we see this tension between in, within the disciples. But it says this. This is from an early father. It says, look at the apostles themselves who would not have left all they had, trodden underfoot this world's hope, and followed the Lord if they had not had proportionately great faith. It took great faith to get off the boat and say, I'm going to follow this Christ, despite the fact that the scribes are after Him, the Pharisees are after Him, the Herodians are after Him, John the Baptist has lost his head, he's told us we have to die if we're going to follow Him, and they're still hanging around. That's great faith. And yet, if they had already experienced a completely matured faith, they would have not said to the Lord, increase our faith. You see that in other places. Rather, we find here an emerging faith which is not yet full faith, in that, in that father who, when he had presented to the Lord his son to be cured of an evil spirit, and was asked whether he believed, answered, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Lord, says he, I believe. I believe. Therefore, there was faith. But help me in my unbelief. Therefore, there was not full faith. Who here can say when you wake up in the morning until the time you put your head on the pillow at night? That your day was lived with full faith. That you completely trusted in the Lord and rested in the Lord in every single thing that was done that day. can't say that. Of course not. So you experience, right? You understand what this guy's going through. Lord, I do believe. But Lord, Lord, I don't believe. Help my unbelief. I believe, but I don't. There's the tension. And so you have here... The next part, look at what Christ does. So this man calls out, Christ, help my unbelief. And what does Christ do here in 25? When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And then in verse 26, after crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, he is dead. And this is the coolest part in this whole passage for me. This is the part I said, it's the resurrection. Okay. Now, look at here. Now, first of all, we know he's not dead. Because it says he's so much like a dead. It's as if he were dead. Okay. They're looking at him, though. They don't know that. They're looking at him and they're thinking he's dead. It's over. And this is curious because this is, this is, this is how it always is. When Israel is delivered from slavery in Egypt and they're in the wilderness, you know, things always look bleak. And you always look at it and you're like, man, I, it was better before God showed up. It was better before we were, you know, at least beforehand we were slaves, yeah, but we got to eat onions and, and, and garlic and we had some good food. At least, at least we had food there. Here we are in the wilderness, we don't have anything to eat. Can we go back? So it looks, now, it looks like now that God had showed up, things got worse. You see this also with Christ after the cross. And they're looking around and they realize uh-oh. <laughs> he died. What do we do now? <laughs> he died. You know? And you see the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they're, they're crestfallen. They are bummed out when Christ appears to them. Man, have you not heard? This guy that we all, we, we had our faith in this guy, and he's supposed to be this liberator, he's supposed to come in, and he's dead. And then hear the same thing. Don't you know this father was like, great, <laughs> Now you killed my son. It would have been better had you not even come and showed up. And, and That he's, you know, he's demon-possessed is better that he's killed, and now, you, now he's dead. You killed him. But here you have something. Look at this. What was the conversation before this scene took place? What was the conversation between Jesus, Peter, James, and John coming down the mountain? Remember the conversation? Look at verse 9 of this chapter. As they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. They seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. What's this guy talking about rising from the dead? The scene before he went on the, up in the mountain. Same thing when Christ is saying, hey, the Son of Man has to go, he has to suffer, he has to die, and then he'll rise from the dead. What does he what do you mean? Die and be risen? for? What is that about? Here you have a corpse. And now check this out in verse 27. And everybody's saying he is dead. I mean, in 26, you see that? He's dead. 27, but Jesus took him by the hand and raised him. And your translation says, and he got up. You know what the Greek says? It says he took him by the hand and raised him, and he was resurrected. That's what it says in the Greek, and he was Resurrected. He was raised up from the dead. It's the same word about Christ's resurrection. Same word. He was resurrected. Why is that important? Because everything Christ has been teaching them to this point, at least for the last four or five scenes, has been about I am to die and I'm to be raised up from the dead. And in Abraham, I'll give you an example of this, okay, as far as why this all starts to make sense here. In Hebrews 11, it talks about Abraham going to Mount, uh, Mount Moriah and he's going to offer his son Isaac on the altar. Remember that? Now, he takes his son, and we know that he doesn't actually sacrifice the son because God intervenes and says, No, 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 don't do that. There's a lamb in the, th- or actually a ram in the thicket, okay? God's going God's to provide the lamb one day. Here's the thing in Hebrews chapter 11, when talking about this scene, it says that Abraham received his son back as a type of the resurrection, which was to come. It's a type. In other words, it's a preview of what's to take place. It's the the thing that's going to happen in the future. It's a foreshadowing. It's a picture of what's to take place. That's what this is. It's a type. It's a foreshadowing. It's a a glance at what's going to happen to Christ. He's going to die, and then what's going to happen? He's going to be raised from the dead. That's what he's showing. I mean, it's beautiful because Christ is always teaching. He's always teaching, there's no arbitrary exorcism. There's no arbitrary healing. Every healing that we've seen Christ do has a very, very deep meaning. And it's always pointing to something so His disciples see it and learn from it. And then, of course, for us as well. And then, they go back to the house in 28, and the disciples are questioning them. Why can't we, what happened out there? They're debriefing. What, What went wrong, Right? And, and you know on the surface, you're like, well, I know what's wrong. You weren't there with us. Where were you? And they don't say that, but you, you can imagine, right? I mean, that's, but we know that that can't absolutely be the case because we know that Christ, when he sends them out previously, they go out and they're doing things, and Christ says, I saw Satan falling out of heaven like lightning, and I saw these things that you were doing out there. So now they're saying, okay, what happened? They're questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? What did we do wrong? What were we supposed to do that we didn't do? Did we forget our rosary beads? What did what happened out there? And also look what you have here in verse 29. You have Christ responding this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now here's the thing about prayer. And here's the thing about this kind. This is a type of wickedness, it's a type of evil. But you know what the best thing? In fact, Eric mentioned this in the catechism class today, and I thought, man, that's so exactly spot on. You know what these disciples need at this stage in their life? They need to fail. They need to fall flat on their faces. Because in falling flat on their faces, you know what happens when we fail, when we fall on our faces? You know what we do, right? Of course we do. You go to God and you realize, God, I have nothing. There is nothing I can do. I'm weak. I'm... I'm Without any sense, apparently, I, I'm apart from Christ. I fail. So what's it going to do? It's going to motivate them to go back to the source to realize. Unless that's the purpose of prayer, is it not? That's what. That's why when he mentions prayer, what is prayer? Well, prayer is what is prayerlessness. You know what prayerlessness is? It's a sign of self-confidence. It's a sign of self-reliance. What do I need to pray for? I can do it. What do I need? What do I need to pray for? I got enough strength, I got enough wisdom, I got enough might, I got enough education, I got enough whatever it is. I don't need to pray. I got it, I got it taken care of. But then when you fail, when you mess up, when you realize how prone, especially how prone you are, even if you don't fail, and you realize how susceptible you are to failing, to messing up, to falling on your face, then you know I better pray. I need to go to God and ask God to help me. That's what that's what prayer is. That's why. Calvin, and I know I mentioned this in the prayer meetings before in a lot, but Calvin talks about how the greatest act of faith is prayer. The greatest act of faith that you can actually do, the greatest manifestation or sign that you have faith is your prayer, by praying, by the fact that, because there's a sense in which you can be a nominal, and actually, let's call it a practical, you can be a practical atheist. If you're not praying, you're a practical atheist, are you not? You might say all day long, oh, I believe in God, I believe this, I, I know my catechism, I know, I know my Bible. Yeah, but are you praying? Because if you're not, it's just a book, right? And it's not to say that, it's not to say that the two are divorced, but it's to say, right, if, if it's easy, in a sense, to have head knowledge. But to have no knowledge of who God is. The Pharisees had that. You have a lot of that, of a lot of people in this world today. I mean, they're, you, know, you go to a professor at Texas Tech or Harvard or any of these places, man, they know the Bible left and right. The, the devil knows the Bible backwards and forwards, Genesis and Revelation. The devil's not praying. These professors aren't praying. Why? They don't have faith in God. They don't have love for God. They don't have conviction of sin, at least in a way that drives them to Christ. So a sign, a mark of faith, is the fact that I pray. And here we see with the disciples, you're seeing here that God uses means to bring about his work on earth. Guys, if you want this to take place, you have to pray. That's what he's saying. If you want this, this kind to be driven out, you know what you have to do, guys? You have to pray. Very simple. And yet it's not simple, right? But here's the thing, okay? And this goes for us as we wind down here. When you're looking at, you know, you also see something that's, that is quite significant here as far as children goes. You've got to look at this. Our children are exposed to evil and wickedness and darkness. And we can open that up or we can help close that. And, and, you know, this isn't to scare or shock anybody, but it is a fact, right? We know that our children are exposed to all kinds of wickedness. The, we know it's, as, as, you know how it is. You cannot go from the time you wake up until the time again, until the time you sleep at night without being exposed to a lot of wickedness out there. And it was that way before media and social media and all that. Now it's really that way. You're definitely going to get barraged by all kinds of wickedness. Our children are being barraged. You take my, you know, I take my son to Walmart, and you hear God's name being blasphemed this way and that way, and you see people scantily clothed over here, and you see posters for LGBTQ over here, and then you go home and, you know, try to watch a decent Christian show on YouTube or something, and then you got advertisement of some guy that's trying to be a woman. I mean, What do you do about all this? And what we know you're not supposed to do is, son, we're going to go live in the woods and be monks, and that's that. You can't do that. Now, but it is to say that, of course, you know, you protect your children to the extent that you can, but we know ultimately, you you know, we're not talking about living in a bubble. We're talking about we are God's people living in the midst of a very wicked, crooked generation. What do we do about it? Here's the remedy. Pray. That's what we do about it. Pray for our children. Again, going back to this self-dependent, you know, I don't know what to pray for. How about your children? There's a good start, right? And and it's not just, you know, even when it comes to the mnemonic in our culture, I was listening to some some guys talk about uh, spiritual warfare and things, especially compared in our culture to other cultures, and let's say the Western culture. You know, in the Eastern cultures and Southern cultures, as as Guthrie and, and the Edwards can point out, I'm sure the demonic is much more obvious. It's much more front and center. It's much more in your face. And we've heard Guthrie talk about this—the certain idols that that they're worshiping over there. And we saw the same thing in Ireland a hundred thousands of years ago when they're worshiping crow and they're. Or tree stumps, I guess, and they're eating dead crow, and they're killing each other with hatchets, and they're everything else, cannibalism, right? And it's more in your face. They're worshiping weird gods, and we're like, well, we don't do that in our culture. But here's the thing. The demonic, as far as the dark forces in our culture, are obviously present. And you, I mean, i got a huge list, of course, but you can go through here, and you, okay, so abortion, LGBTQ, euthanasia. Suicide and drug overdose higher than they've ever been. False religions: Mormons, Islam, the occult, liberal Christianity, right? The, the different ideas, evolution. You share a common ancestor with a monkey. You were a monkey, chimpanzee. They'll say it's what? What a monkey, chimpanzee. Right? Oh, excuse me. Technology, you know, pornography, artificial intelligence, kind of stuff, and technology can be good. Ideas, all these things, you know, ideas can be good. But then you also have like, where ideas like the state is God and, and these other weird religions, right? So here's the thing the dark forces are most definitely, definitely, definitely very thick in the Western world. And so what do we do about it? We pray. There's the remedy, right? We pray. This, this church plant, we know from day one, from day one, If you want to talk about spiritual warfare, I feel like there's a lot of seasons in this church when everybody starts getting hammered, hammered, hammered by spiritual oppression big time in this church from day one. And it's weird because they're in seasons and it seems like everybody starts getting hit at the same time. I have no idea what that's about, but we all know when you start planting a church, and especially when it's a confessionally reformed church, which... I wholeheartedly believe, with all my soul, is the truest expression of biblical Christianity that's ever been seen in script. Guess what's going to happen? Every single person in here who's involved in this church plant is going to come up against massive, massive spiritual warfare. I promise. And this is not to scare anybody. This is to point out that Christ has given us a remedy here. What do you do? Pray. This type can't be overcome. This type can't be dealt with unless you pray. That's what he's saying. And, of course, it's true as well for even just ourselves. You know, our sin, our bitterness, our resentment, all these things that plague us every day, constantly. What do we do about it? Pray. That's what we have here. So as we come to the table today and as we look at these things, here's the thing. When you see what Christ is doing, Christ. here's the beauty of this, right? Here's the beauty of this. You go to a charismatic church and man, you think that the devil has just as much power as God. Do you know, sometimes you come away, at least the guys I've talked to. One guy, I remember, he said he was scared to turn off the light. He's 22 years old. He's scared to turn the light off because of the devil. But here's the thing. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. So now we're not dealing with some foe who has power. You know, when you look at Halloween, by the way, there's a side of Halloween. Some people will say that, Halloween, the way it came up in our culture and stuff, especially, let's say, in a Christian culture, it was a day, and I'm sure a lot of you have heard this, it was a day when the Christians make fun of the devil by wearing the outfits and kind of like laughing at them. Ha-ha, you have no power, you have no, right? Why? Because of Christ. When you read, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, and you realize, all. look, read that, and you go through there and you realize that the devil, his power, his reign, his prowess, his strength, his might has been snapped. So it's not to say we have to go around cowering in fear and being worried of the, but it's to say, it's to say that this foe apart from Christ will destroy us. But now that we have Christ, utilize every means available to us to see that this devil, that the demonic, Is put down. And here's the beauty of the gospel. As the gospel goes forth in this land, in this city, we have no doubt, we are very optimistic about this, that the demonic is going to to decrease. Just like it was, you guys that study church history. What did Ireland used to look like? What did England used to look like? What did West Texas used to look like with all the Comanches running around raping everybody? Then the gospel comes. It's true. So there's our hope. But God tells us to pray. That we have a part in this. Pray. So let's pray. Oh God, we come before you tonight, today. Lord, and we are thankful for the for the power that Christ has given us. We thank you that, that we in ourselves are very weak and we are very prone to error and prone to sin, prone to wonder. But we thank you that our Christ has come and he has destroyed the strong man. He has bound the strong man. But Lord, we also know that we're still in the midst of a fight that's very real. And, and Lord, it, 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 it can seem very brutal at times, but we thank you, O oh God, that, that you've given us this, this instrument, this, this means that we can call upon your name. And, and, and Lord, we thank you that you're a God who not only is, but that you're a God who hears our prayers, and that you, you do answer them. You tell us that you're a good father, and you give good gifts to your children, especially when they ask for the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would give us all an extra measure of Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, an extra measure of grace in our life. And, and, and whatever it is that we're up against, Lord, that you would give us grace, give this church plant grace, oh God, give us power, that we would be a, 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 a spiritual wrecking ball against the forces of darkness in this city and in our homes and in the homes around us, these neighborhoods that we live in, our workplaces, that you would give us grace to go forth with the gospel and that you would utterly vanquish all the darkness in this land. Lord, we thank you that we we do see the advance of Christ across this globe, Lord, that even today there's saints in China meeting underground Lord, we know that in Thailand, the 1%, 2% of the population, Lord, thank you for that 2%. Please, O God, bring increase there. Around this globe, O God, that you would continue to vanquish the dark powers. Protect our children. Lord, have mercy on them against the enemy. Lord, we thank you that our Christ is victorious. That we're not waiting for him to reign, but that he reigns today. Or give us grace to believe that, to, to, to not be like this man who wavers in his faith. Give us grace to believe that that Christ reigns. We pray it in His name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, please turn with me to Second uh, Samuel 9. I'll have a quick word.